First Thessalonians 5. The end of last year, we spent uh, nearly two months of Sunday mornings considering in detail the concept of prayer, what it is, why we do it, uh, how we do it, how we don't do it, uh, what it's not. All of that time looking into prayer with the purpose of recognizing the, the power of prayer in our lives and the purposes with which we go to prayer. This evening, we look at just two verses, very short verses. And these verses are going to lead us into this topic of prayer again, but in a little bit of a different way. We're going to see two verses seemingly unrelated, matter-of-fact statements. But in fact, as we look at them, we'll find that they are quite related. And it's one of those connections between these two verses, the idea of rejoicing and praying that we're going to consider this evening. Look with me, if you would, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 and 17. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. That's it. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. The commands are straightforward, aren't they? but anything from simple. The concept of rejoicing is what we might call a transcendent concept in Scripture. And what I mean by this is that rejoicing is not a command or a concept that has dependent factors upon it. Happiness has dependencies. Circumstances surrounding us can make us happy or they can make us Sad. They can bring us delight or they can bring us to sorrow. Your health can change. Your circumstances can change. Your physical abilities can change. Things physical, things emotional can hinder you. They can bring about a state of unhappiness, a state of pain, a state where um, you're, you're not in the best of moods. But through all of that, the virtue of living a life in Christ goes beyond that which is physical. It goes beyond that which is emotional. All of the ways that sin manifests itself in this world, the way that sin destroys lives, it brings weaknesses and pain, suffering and death, and the, the end of sin is always death. Make no mistake, the end of sin is always death. Even in a believer's life, the end of sin is to work in us that which is opposite of Christ. It doesn't bring us to eternal death, but it works out in our lives a separation from God. Heartache, sorrow, confusion, vulnerability. I was talking to Ed during the, the dinner on the grounds this afternoon about the last couple of weeks of time at the jail. And I've been working one-on-one -on -one with some women who have had some deep burdens. I uh, told you all a little bit about that at lunch with, with the one lady uh, this last week and then ladies on the weeks before, working with them, wrestling with them in the manner of speaking. Uh, spiritual warfare as I'm seeking to explain to these women the gospel and their need for the gospel. And I leave the jail, I've left the last two weeks, literally exhausted, completely drained. It's been hard for me to work even, to, to focus in the afternoons, to get the work done that I need to, because I'm so drained. And what I see as I sit across the table from these women is the devastation of sin. 
Sin has caused them to forsake their children, to put themselves in a life of addiction, uh, to, to bring them to, to a state of absolute despair with their lives. And we know that this is what sin does. We've seen these effects of sin in, in lives. But when Christ lived upon this earth, He rose above the sin of this world. He met sin on its own turf and He defeated sin. Sin brings illness. Jesus brought divine healing. Sin brings deceit and lies and, and untruth. Jesus brought complete truth. Sin brings evil. Jesus brought righteousness. Sin brings death. Jesus defeated death. Every blight that sin brought into this life, into this world, has been defeated in Christ because Christ has defeated sin. And we who have accepted this life, the Christ life, who are indwelled by the Spirit of Christ, who have tasted freedom from the depths of that sin, freedom from the power of that sin, we live as pilgrims in a world that is not our own. We live in Christ's world, in this world. We live as kingdom citizens in a place, in a foreign land. We journey in this life as ambassadors of the life that is to come. We live in the midst of the squalor of sin. We are deeply influenced by the evil of sin that is all around us. But for all of this influence, for all of the ways that evil and sin surrounds us, even abuses us in this life, the Spirit of Christ inside us enables us the capacity by God's grace alone to live literally as citizens of the kingdom of God upon this earth. And what does that mean? What does it mean to live as Christ's children, as Christ's subjects, as Christ's citizens of His kingdom on this earth? And to know that, we need to know what it will be like to live in heaven. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5, the scriptures tell us this. John writing, he says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or dwelling place of God is with men and He will dwell with them and they shall be His people and God Himself shall be with them and be their God and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. See, heaven is not simply a location, nor is a location what heaven is about. Heaven is about who we will be there with. Heaven is not free from sin and pain and death because of where it is, but because of who resides there and what He expects. See, heaven is the dominion of Jesus Christ and where Christ is, sin is not. Where Christ is, suffering is not. Where Christ is, pain and anguish is not. That is why every tear will be wiped away. That is why there will be no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. That is why there will be rejoicing because the Lord is there. But my friend, you have the Spirit of Christ within you. 
And that is the way God asks you to live this life. Not with your head buried in the sand pretending that sin doesn't affect us. Nor allowing sin to stifle the Spirit of God which is in us. I'm not talking here about the power of positive thinking. I'm not talking about channeling our inner strength. I'm talking about yielding to the Spirit of God. Allowing the Spirit of God which is in us to flow through us, living out the reality of the presence of Christ in your life on a daily basis, and thus being in a place of joy. Allowing Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God which is in us to command every aspect of your spirit which is the motivator for the mind which is the commander of the body. What your body does is what your mind tells it to do. What your mind wants is at the power, under the power, under the influence of your spirit which is either yielded to the Spirit of God or yielded to the flesh. So Paul would write in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Paul tells the churches of Galatia this simple truth that as they make no provision for the flesh, to obey it in the lust thereof. That as they yield themselves in humility to the Spirit of God through having clean hands and a clean heart, that they, that you, become fertile soil within which the fruit of the Spirit can grow. Fruit planted by Christ Himself the moment you accepted the gift of salvation. Fruit tended by the Word of God and by prayer. Fruit not grown by you, but grown in you to whatever degree you will allow it to do so. And to whatever degree this fruit grows, your joy will grow. And to whatever degree joy grows, rejoicing is the result. We have talked recently in several contexts about the paradoxes of Christianity. One of the paradoxes of receiving Christ is that a man must use childlike faith. He must accept that which from a mental or emotional or logical perspective is foolishness. And in doing so, by accepting that which mentally, logically, we would say is foolish, reasonably we would say is not reasonable, that God would send His Son to die for men, that we don't have to work our way to heaven, but rather we just have to accept the gift that Jesus Christ has given to us. If we will accept this in faith, then we will gain the wisdom of God and one's eyes will be open to how things truly are in this world. You must become simple if you are to gain that which is complex. You must become like a child if you are to gain eternity. One of the paradoxes of living the Christian life is that we preach and talk, and in some ways live a life of godliness, 
as if it depends upon us. We discipline ourselves according to the teachings of the Scriptures. We avoid that which is wrong and those who are bad influences upon us. We do things that we consider to be godly and pious because we know God wants us to. Yet the very foundation of the Christian life is rooted in the reality that there is, in fact, nothing that you can do in yourself that is any good. That there is nothing that you can do in yourself to please God. Even as a believer, the only things that please God are the things that are done in the Spirit. The things that the Spirit does in you and the Spirit does through you. So while we do things, we recognize that the desire and the ability to obey God is not rooted in ourselves, but rather rooted in the degree to which we are willing to submit our spirits to the control of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We don't do good, we submit to God, and then that produces good in us. And so this paradox can be explained with that phrase that perhaps you've heard before, work like it all depends on you, knowing it all depends upon God. Live like it depends on you, in that we do indeed reject the world. We do seek piety and godliness and obedience to the Word of God. But we do so always remembering that it is completely dependent upon God. That we don't conjure up good behavior, but rather we purpose to be submissive to the Spirit and watch as good behavior is the result. And particularly for those of us who are second and third generation Christians, this is, can be difficult. Because we know how to conjure up goodness. We know how to conjure up morality. We know how to discipline ourselves into being good-looking people. But God doesn't want good-looking people. God wants yielded, submissive people. Consider how Paul describes the paradox of ministering in a sin-sick world, but transcending that world in spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4-10, through he says this. This is him speaking of his ministry and the ministry of the apostles among them. But in all things approving ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Do you see this paradox? See, because rejoicing is not about your physical circumstances. Rejoicing is about the one who carries you through those circumstances. It's about God. It's about your relationship with Him. We may have nothing materially, but we possess anything and everything that matters when we possess Christ. We may be poor materially, but we labor to give others the spiritual riches that we have found. We may live in deep sorrow 
physically, deep sorrow emotionally, but we rejoice always in spirit, for great is our reward in heaven. Our Savior has already won the day. Every victory over sin has already been secured. Every perceived cost in this life, every friend that is lost, every family member that is lost, every pleasure that we give up, everything that is lost in this world is more than compensated for in the life to come. And so we rejoice evermore. This is why we rejoice. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, he says, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We rejoice evermore, not because of anything in this life, but because of what is coming in the life that is to come. We rejoice evermore because the blessing of God rests upon us and no influence of sin can take that away from us. But to live with such determination, to live with this reality of rejoicing, with this fortitude, with this foresight, to operate with our eyes so strongly fixed upon the eternal prize that is to come that we do not waver from heavenly virtue in the face of physical and emotional suffering that is around us, to rise above the world in attitude so that we indeed do rejoice evermore. To do this, we must keep our eyes fixed on the one who is greater than we. To do this, we must live in a constant remembrance of what we have and of where we are going. Like the soldier who lovingly gazes at the photograph of his wife back in the States, knowing that he's fighting for her and eagerly anticipating the day when he will return. Like my children who are eagerly anticipating going to Nana and Papa's house here in a couple of weeks and are excited to be able to talk with Nana and Papa because it just brings them that one step closer to getting to their house when they get to commune with them. This is the link between rejoicing and prayer. That rejoicing is all about knowing what is coming. Prayer gives us a little taste of it. Brings us just a little closer to heaven. We go to the throne of God for His strength to live today, but also for a divine reminder of what is waiting for us. Prayer is our link to our heavenly home. When a child goes off to college and they get homesick, they pick up that phone and they call and they talk to mom and dad, brother, sister, whoever it might be, a little taste of home and they feel better. Prayer draws us to that throne. Prayer draws us 
a little bit closer to our heavenly home. And on the days where it's not easy to rejoice, prayer helps us remember that this life is not the end all be all. It draws us to the throne of the one who will wipe every tear away from our eyes. It links us to the voice of the one who has redeemed us, to the voice of the one who is asking us to trust him enough to give up the promises of this world in order to obtain the promises of the world to come. The Spirit of God produces the rejoicing. Talking to God helps sustain the rejoicing. The Spirit of God gives us that taste of heaven. Talking to the One who has gone to prepare it for us reminds us it's there. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean then? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Well, obviously, we can't be constantly on our knees. We have lives to live. We don't come out of this world just because we are headed to a different world. In failing to live in this world, we fail to meet the needs of the world, and that's why God has left us here. So to pray without ceasing doesn't mean we lock ourselves in a room all the time detach ourselves from the world around us. So we have to dig a bit deeper to understand what it means to pray without ceasing. We've mentioned already that prayer is communication. It is our opportunity to talk to God through Christ. Hebrews 4.16 tells us this, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To pray is to enter into the presence of God, to stand before Him like the Old Testament high priest would stand before the ark of God offering up incense unto the Most High. Only, we don't need a a mediator. We don't need an ark. We have a great high priest in the heavens, a great high priest who ever lives to intercede. Now, to pray without ceasing is to actively perpetually practice the presence of God, if I might put it that way. To pray without ceasing is to actively, perpetually practice the presence of God. To live out the reality that God is with you and to allow that reality to influence your every waking moment. To pray without ceasing is to live in God's presence moment-by-moment communion with God through moment-by-moment fellowship with God. Moment-by-moment communion with God through moment-by-moment fellowship with God. God's Spirit thus directs your thoughts, your motives, your behaviors. God's presence constrains you unto actions and intentions and also reminds you why you do what you do. This morning we talked about that a little bit, didn't we? The idea of listening to God. How does God speak to us? And we mentioned specifically that uh, if you don't hear God speaking, if you don't know, if you're not receiving communication from God, either you're not a believer or you're not listening. You're not in fellowship. God's presence pulls you to the height of rejoicing because it pulls you onto a heavenly plane. And so we're told again by Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, that we are to be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, 
continuing instant in prayer, when we are walking in fellowship with God's Spirit through having confessed our sin, through being right with God. We'll talk about that more in a moment. We're fellowshipping with God. We're communing with God. We are in communication with God. We are walking with God. We are indeed praying without ceasing. We have a spirit of communication with God about that which we are doing. We are seeking His will in our moment-by-moment activities, intentions, and steps. We rejoice, we endure, and then we persevere in prayer because it links us to the reality of the presence of God. If these two short verses do not form an adequate summary of the regular state of our Christian lives, if rejoicing evermore and praying without ceasing is not the reality of our day in and day out, we need to begin to ask ourselves why. And so we're going to take the last few minutes of our sermon this evening contemplating two different possibilities as to why it might be that we are not rejoicing evermore and not praying without ceasing. And the first possible hindrance to rejoicing prayer is a love for sin. The epistle of 1 John is the definitive Bible teaching on fellowship with God. If you want to learn about how to have fellowship with God, 1 John is the book that you go to. 1 John does not have anything to do with salvation. It has everything to do with fellowship. And in 1 John 1, verses 5-7, through 7, the Bible tells us this. This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, And walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanseth us from all sin. There is no fellowship with God where there is sin in your life, unconfessed sin. There is no fellowship with God where there is Darkness, And if there is no fellowship, then there is no communion. And if there's no communion, then there is no prayer without ceasing. There is no active link to the Holy Spirit in you. You're grieving the Spirit of God. And so where there is sin, there is no prayer without ceasing. And certainly there is no rejoicing. To whatever degree you have elevated a love for some sin, similar to what we talked about in Sunday school this morning, whether that's lust, desiring something that's not yours, or covetousness, desiring something that is someone else's, or anger, resentment, depression, um, the lack of control over your emotions, or deceit, or lying, some manner of living contrary to the truth, or stealing, whether that's stealing music off the internet, or, or movies from the internet, or candy from the store, or whatever it might be, to whatever degree you are doing something contrary to God's word, will, or character and are doing it in a state of unconfession, of unrepentance, some obvious sin, known sin in your life that persists without repentance, you must recognize that you're walking out of fellowship with the Lord. And the man who walks out of fellowship with God is without question incapable of praying without ceasing. We talked in our prayer series that 
the, the man that has unconfessed sin, that God will not hear him. The psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We know from 1 John as well as from several other places that where we regard sin in our heart, we are grieving the Spirit of God and thus the Spirit of God cannot bear fruit in us. No rejoicing, no prayer where there is unconfessed sin. For prayer is, in essence, communion with God. On the contrary, John goes on to say this in 1 John 2, verses 15-17. to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, is not abiding in him. He is not living in the reality of God. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Continual abiding to the one who is doing the will of God. Our love for or loyalty to anything in this world above God strips us of the capacity to serve God as we ought, of our fellowship with Him, and of the rejoicing that we ought to have in Christ. If you don't rejoice evermore, if you aren't praying without ceasing, perhaps the problem is a love for sin, but there may be a different problem. And that other problem is the danger of living in legalism. The possible, there's a possible problem of living in sin. The other possible thing that could strip you of rejoicing prayer is legalism. Legalism is, by definition, attempting to earn favor with God by the things that we do. Whether it's uh, attempting to earn salvation by the things that we do or attempting to uh, earn sanctification, um, earn treasure in heaven by the things that we do, legalism is attempting to earn favor with God by our actions. Legalism is very tempting. And in a manner of speaking, it's very easy to fall into. We spoke earlier about the danger of trying to manufacture the fruit of the Spirit rather than submitting ourselves to Christ. And particularly second generation, third generation Christians, uh, this is the desire, or this is a, a great temptation because it's easy for us to do. The paradox between doing our best for God but ultimately understanding that we can't do it but that we have to submit to the Spirit of God who will do it through us. And if we get this out of balance and we start trying to please God by our own efforts, we start doing Christian things and religious things and moral things for the sake of earning favor with God, our own capacity for religion, our own personal discipline, we will find ourselves in a miserable place. Our memory work for this next month is Romans 4, 4 and 5, and it says this, Now to him that worketh, is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. The attempt to work our way to God, whether it be for salvation or for sanctification, engenders in our spirit a feeling of indebtedness, a feeling of debt. When we have these feelings of debt, then any failure to do good things results in frustration, 
I told you all that for years I lived this way, particularly my high school years. I lived this way. That when I did something wrong, and I believe I was a Christian in high school, when I did something wrong, I felt as though I had just earned, uh, incurred a debt against God and I had to do enough good to earn His favor back. I say, okay, I did this today and I shouldn't have done that. So maybe I confess my sin. I ask the Lord to forgive me immediately and I know I'm forgiven. But then maybe in two or three days, I can work back. If I do good for a couple of days, then I can work myself back into a place of favor with God where He can use me again, where He can be working through me, where we can have that relationship again. And this was my mindset. It wasn't inherently intentional. It was just the way I thought that when I did something wrong, I had to work my way back into favor. Do you see how my perspective on God and sin brought about in my heart a a tally of debt? That I felt as though I had a debt that I had to work off, even though I knew God had forgiven me for doing it, I didn't see forgiving as a release. I saw forgiving as a, as a response, as it were. As it was something emotional, but, but the physical problem was still there. That I still had to work my way out of that hole that I dug, even though God had forgiven me for digging the hole. And that's not forgiveness. That is a works-based way of living. That's legalism. That when I do something, I feel as though I have a debt to, to earn back with God. And here's the problem with legalism. There's plenty of problems. Legalism sees us trying our best to be good. We connect those good actions directly to how God sees us, or how much God loves us, or the degree to which God is happy with us. And so every failure becomes a loss of God's favor. Every failure becomes, as I mentioned, another debt. And it grows in our impossible quest to make God happy into the mountain of debt that we can never overcome. Legalism makes me feel like I'm something special compared to the world around me because I'm doing a lot of good things. But it also and will always lead to deep frustration rooted in our insufficiency before God. That before God, I'm digging my hole deeper, even though around me I'm seeing people and I say, well, at least I'm not digging my hole as deep as that guy. True spirituality is nothing like this. True spirituality is about living for Christ as an extension of our love for Christ and our desire to please Him. True spirituality is recognizing that the debt has been paid and so now I desire to live for Christ because the debt has been paid. I don't see myself as digging a hole when I sin. I see myself as having spurned the love of the one who got me out of the hole. That is, that is true spirituality. True sp- spirituality does not need to spend time and effort conjuring up godliness, disciplining myself into piety, because within the context of true spirituality, godliness flows naturally as an extension of my life that is a life properly related to God through fellowship. The epistle of Galatians is the book of the Bible that focuses on legalism. If I wanted to know about walking in fellowship with God, I'd go to 1 John. If I want to know about the dangers of legalism, I'd go to the book of Galatians. And in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, and we'll read through verse 3. 
He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently set, been, been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the spirit of the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Paul is speaking to a group of believers. He asked in verse 2, let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And what he fully expected is that everybody reading that epistle would say, well, faith, of course. We receive the Spirit of God by faith. You wrote that in your book, in your epistle to the Ephesians, right, Paul? For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I won't be able to boast before the throne of God one day for my salvation because my salvation is fully by grace through faith, Paul. And Paul says, that's right. So why then, now that you're saved, are you trying to live in the flesh? Are you trying to perfect your salvation in the flesh? Are you heaping upon yourself rules and laws that the Bible doesn't talk about and expectations that the Bible's not asking and a debt that you can't pay? Why are you placing yourself back under the bondage of the law when you've been freed from the law? If it was faith that brought you through the Spirit into salvation, then it is faith that will lead you through this life unto sanctification, not your own flesh. They were believers. They sought, however, to perfect their faith in the flesh through legalistic attempts to please God by keeping rules and by working hard to earn favor. And if this person didn't keep this rule, then they were out of favor with God and I'm in favor with God because I keep these rules. And that's legalism. Paul goes on to say this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, giving you a Cliff Notes version of Galatians here. Howbeit then... When ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, in other words, God knows you, you're saved, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? He's not talking about sin here. He's talking about the law. He's talking about legalism. He's talking about heaping rules and rules and rules upon ourselves to keep ourselves right with God. He's talking about doing what we can to make God happy. God's happy with me today because I read my Bible for 30 minutes and I prayed for 15 minutes and I went to church twice this week and I wore a suit and so God is happy with me. Oh, God's angry with me today because I, I, I didn't read my Bible because I didn't get, get to church this week. God, I'm out of favor with God. Paul says, why if you've been freed from that? If the unbelieving world around you is working and working and working their way to heaven and you know you've been freed from it, why have you placed yourself back in bondage to it? It makes sense that unbelievers, the religious of this world, are doing everything they can to earn favor with God. It makes sense that unbelievers will seek to work their way into favor with whatever they have chosen to be their God, because that is how the human mind works. If you want favor with me, you earn favor with me. That's how the human mind works, and their God is made in their own image. So they impose that upon their God. But you, who rest in faith alone for your favor with God unto salvation, why is it that you pursue the same dead works as the rest 
of the world for your attempts to earn favor with God unto sanctification. And perhaps the reason why you're frustrated in your Christian life and you can't rejoice Perhaps the reason why prayer without ceasing becomes a tedium, constant communication with God is a tedium, is because you see God as the great debt maker, the great taskmaster, and you're having to constantly try to scrape your way out of the holes of debt that you see God placing you in because of your sin. All it does is bring about deep frustration. Paul's solution is presented in Galatians 5. I told you the Cliff Notes version. I was just thinking as I said that, a bunch of homeschool kids, do you even know what Cliff Notes are? It's like a summarized version of a book. Rosie knows. Galatians 5, 16-18. This I say then, Paul says, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things you would. But if ye be led of the spirit, you're not under. You are not under the law. You won't be living under this false pretense of pleasing God through your works, because you will be serving God with all your heart, walking in the spirit, and you will please God. Because the things that you've done are, you, you're doing are done in the Spirit. Pastor, it's easy enough to say, how do we do it? Well, daily submission to the Spirit of God. Prayer. Moment by moment fellowship with God through confession of any known sin. Personal determination to seek God's will above my own. And then watch. Watch as your desire to sin falls away. And your love of righteousness shines like the sun. Fleshly attempts to love and serve God will end in frustration. Submission to the Spirit of God will bring rejoicing evermore and prayer without ceasing. So the question is, how are you doing today? Are you rejoicing? Are you praying without ceasing? Hope so. If you're not, the question becomes, why not? Is it a love for sin that's overriding your love for God that's keeping you in a place of, of lack of communion with God? Or have you been perhaps seeking favor with God through work rather than through the Spirit? And may I just say this about legalism? Legalism is lazy Christianity. And it won't bring about what legalism seeks to achieve. Legalism is doing things the easy way today, a checklist. But in doing so, we make it much harder on ourselves in the long run. Like the parent who doesn't discipline their, chi- their child when they're young, and so their children get up into those teen years, and now they're trying to discipline them, and it becomes ten times harder. Legalism puts off the importance of living a spirit-filled life, and instead... It teaches you how to mimic a spirit-filled life in the flesh. And then one day you realize it's not enough just to mimic a spirit-filled life. You actually need a spirit-filled life if you're going to live in joy and you're going to live in peace and you're going to pray without ceasing and you're actually going to be what God wants you to be. You have to live a spirit-filled life. But see, now you're in this place where you have been indulging your flesh for years. 
living in this false pride and self-righteousness of legalism. And now you have to get yourself to a place where you learn how to submit and you learn how to allow virtue to flow out of submission to God rather than conjure up perceived virtue in the flesh. And it makes the job of becoming what God wants you to be ten times harder. It's lazy Christianity. We're called to rejoice evermore. We're called to pray without ceasing. It's intended to be the root of the Christian experience. It's intended to be the foundation of who we are. It's intended to be that which draws the world to us. May God work it in us as we yield ourselves to Him. Let's pray.